You're listening to Pythagoras' Trousers. Hello and welcome to this month's Pythagorean Astronomy with me, Chris North. This month we're going to look at small things going around other things. Now, in astronomy that happens an awful lot. Planets go around stars, moons go around planets, uh, and so on. But there's three notable small things going around other objects uh, that I'd like to focus on. Later on we'll talk about the possibility of exomoons. You've heard of exoplanets, planets around other stars. What about exomoons? Moons around planets in other solar systems. Certainly very exciting. But first, let's stay in our solar system. Uh, let's go in way towards the Sun uh, and to the object that, as far as we know, gets pretty much closest to the Sun in terms of regular orbiting objects. It's an asteroid discovered back in August, so not long ago. It goes by the catchy name of 2021 PH27. Uh, it's about a kilometre across, so that's uh, not enormous, but... Uh, uh, a reasonable size for, a, for an asteroid. It would certainly uh, pack a bit of a punch uh, if it hit the Earth. Now, this asteroid is interesting because at its closest to the Sun, it gets within 20 million kilometres. So that's about half the distance that Mercury is to the Sun. Uh, so that's the closest object uh, to the Sun, at least at its closest, on an elliptical orbit, an oval-shaped orbit, and at its furthest, it's about 120 kilometres, sorry, 120 million kilometres uh, from the Sun. That's a little bit further away uh, than Venus. Now, this asteroid almost certainly didn't form there. Uh, it probably formed out in the asteroid belt and has been uh, scattered inwards just by gravitational interactions, uh, passing too close to other planets, possibly even the Earth, and then maybe Venus or Mercury later on, that have ended up with it on this orbit. And it possibly won't stay in this orbit for that long. In astronomical terms, not long can mean millions of years, but still, it might not be uh, that long. And eventually, it'll encounter Venus or Mercury again uh, and be uh, either sent out of the solar system or out to the asteroid belt or maybe uh, into the sun or, of course, possibly may hit one of the planets. Fingers crossed uh, that's not us here on Earth. But who knows, that could take millions of years uh, for that to change. But for now, why is this interesting? Well, it was discovered by the Dark Energy Camera, which is something that is looking at the signature of dark energy, this mysterious um, effect seen on cosmological scales that appears to push the universe apart. But this object could be used in a related sense, and that's because as you get closer to the sun, the effects of general relativity, that's Einstein's theory of gravity, uh, become stronger. Mercury is in fact one of the tests of general relativity because its orbit can't quite be explained unless you take into account Einstein's theories and predictions. This object getting closer to the Sun than even Mercury will provide potentially an even stronger test of general relativity and let us test that theory uh, even more still, see if its orbit behaves as uh, it should do. So that's certainly something to watch. 2021 PH27. Maybe one of these days it'll get uh, a name. Now let's move further out into another solar system. Let's go to about 30 light years away. Uh, we're going to a red dwarf star, an M dwarf star, called L9859. Uh, I guess the star's catchy name. Um, and it was known uh, to have uh, three planets going around it from what's called the transit method. These planets were appeared to pass in front of the star as seen from here on Earth. Now these were discovered by uh, TESS, the NASA's uh, Transiting Exoplan uh, Exoplanet Survey Satellite, I think. Uh, but TESS found these, uh, these three planets, and they've been followed up 
uh, by other telescopes at the European Southern Observatory using a different method. Instead of looking for the, the slight winking of a light from the star as the planet passes in front, it looks for the, the, the wobble of the star caused by the gravitational effect of the planet going around it, something called the radial velocity method. And for those uh, planets, uh, that allows you not to get their size, which is what the transit gets you, but their mass. And once you've got their mass, you can get their density. Uh, so they can start to have a feel for what maybe what they're made of, at least to, uh, to some uh, rough estimates. But what is interesting is that one of those planets, its mass and its radius, uh, imply that it's about half the size of Venus, which is about the same size as the Earth, so about half the size of the Earth, less than half the size of the Earth. So this is one of the smallest exoplanets we know of. Now it's very, very close to its parent star. Uh, it goes round in just a, a few days. And in fact, the same team that uh, measured the masses of these objects also found a couple of other planets. So these are then uh, more massive, uh, more massive planets, larger planets in the same system, taking it up to a total of uh, five is the, the best guess at the moment. And even the furthest one of those uh, is uh, goes round once every 20 days. So they're much, much closer to the sun than any of the planets in our solar system. But actually, that's not necessarily a bad thing because their star is much smaller, much fainter, much weaker. And so actually, you can be even closer and still be potentially habitable. So it might be that one of those uh, extra planets that have been discovered might even be habitable. But the interesting thing is getting the mass of this Venus-like planet, this half the size of Venus planet. It's very close to its star. It might be like Venus in terms of its atmosphere. Who knows? We, have, we know nothing uh, about its atmosphere, just that it's very close to its star and then presumably uh, very hot uh, on the surface. But being able to do this with planets so small is uh, something that's really quite remarkable and really sets uh, the scene for what we might be finding in coming years in terms of planets around other stars. So we've got an asteroid orbiting very close to our sun. We've got a very small planet orbiting another star. Uh, but what's the third thing? I mentioned moons earlier. Well, moons form around planets, planets form around stars. And to find out more about planets and moons forming uh, in other solar systems, you really need to look uh, to uh, the stuff they form from, if you want to see that. Uh, going on. And that's exactly what's been done with a recent discovery uh, using data from the ALMA telescope. So the Atacama Large Millimeter and Submillimeter Array based down in Chile, uh, at very high altitude in the Andes, is able to observe these, uh, the, these births of solar systems. Uh, now to find out more about these discoveries and how the ALMA uh, telescope array has helped, uh, I'm joined by Dr. Stefano Facchini, who's an assistant professor at the University of Milan, and until recently was a research fellow at the European Southern Observatory, and was therefore part of the consortium uh, operating and analysing the data from the ALMA telescope. So, Stefano, uh, welcome to the programme. Thank you. ALMA is a telescope that is used an awful lot to look at the formation of objects um, in largely in other solar systems and other galaxies and uh, and, and so on. Um, it's looking at, in this case, we'll, we'll focus on the stuff around stars, the planets and so on. Wh why use ALMA to look for planets around other stars? What does ALMA give us that other telescopes can't? The reason why we use ALMA and uh, what we use it for is mostly to look at the phase in which planets are forming. So we don't look at, you know, uh, finally formed planets, or what we call planets around main sequence stars, so stars that have evolved to a stage like our own sun, but we look at stars in their 
first moments of their evolution and for uh, as for astrophysicists their first uh, their first this first moments are like 10 million years uh, long so in these moments uh it's when around newborn stars there is material uh made up of gas and dust that orbits around these newborn stars and alma is particularly good in uh, observing and detecting and characterizing the gas and dust that orbits around these newborn stars and it's within this orbiting gas in these protoplanetary disks we call them that planets form so with alma what we can do is to characterize the environments where planets are forming and try to understand how they formed and uh, why the planets we see are showed some particular characteristics and, and eventually the big question is uh, what set the conditions for which earth itself is as uh, as it is as um, as we see it now so when we think of stars, we think of very hot objects, uh, thousands of degrees uh, in, in in temperature. Um, the stuff you're looking at, this material, this gas and dust that planets are forming out of, is uh, at the other end of the scale, isn't it? Quite. What kind of material are we looking at when you when you see stuff with with Alma? So this material, you're perfectly right. So stars are at few uh, thousand kelvin. Um, our own sun is above five thousand kelvin, for example. But uh, this material we see, this gas and dust, um, orbits around these stars, but it's very far. And with very far, I mean that we see gas and dust orbiting out to 200 or 300 astronomical units, where an astronomical unit is the distance between the sun and the Earth. So this gas and dust gets heated up by the light uh, from the central star, but it's still pretty cold, and the typical temperatures we look at are, let's say, 20 to 10 Kelvin, which in degrees Celsius, it's uh, minus 260, roughly speaking. But still, um, it's warm enough for us, and that's why we use ALMA at millimeter wavelengths, so the very cold part of the electromagnetic spectrum, it's still warm enough to emit some radiation, some light, not in the visible, but at millimeter wavelength, and we can pick it very well with instruments such as ALMA. And the other big thing about ALMA is that, uh, as, as I mentioned, it's not just one telescope. It's, um, it's about 60 telescopes uh, at the moment. Um, how, uh, what, what advantage does that give uh, of using all those telescopes together? It gives two main advantages. So um, as you rightly said, ALMA is made up by 66 antennas. Uh, the main array, so the main telescopes uh, we use is, are about 45, like for the measurement we'll, we will talk about in a few minutes. Uh, we have like 45 antennas. Uh, each, of, uh, each of them is 12 meter in diameter. And uh, we have so many because, first of all, by having so many antennas, we collect way more light, more photons, than with a single one. We had 45 uh, times more collective area than just with a single one. And it's one, this one uh, reason. And again, what we are looking at when we look at disks and where planets form are very faint things. So we want to have a lot of area 
to look at uh, these things. The second reason why we use um, Alma is because with many antennas, what we can do is to use a technique which we call interferometry, um, which is a particular way in which telescopes can work together in somehow in some collective uh, mean. And how this works is that if we have different antennas that are separated by, you know, we can go as to a distance of 16 kilometers, what we get is that we manage to get an angular resolution of our image that um, is which very similar to a telescope that would have a diameter of 16 kilometers. So for people who don't know, roughly speaking, the angular resolution, so how much detail we can pick up in an image, is uh, related to the diameter of the mirror of these telescopes. So 16 kilometers mirror is huge. And this means that we have a very fine detail in how we image things uh, with ALMA. So we use this technique combining the light of these uh, 45 antennas. And it's like getting an image with a mirror again, which is 16 kilometers in diameter. So we have a very exquisite and extraordinary um, way of looking up at details of these faint and small objects in the sky. So that brings us on to this, this incredible telescope, which ha can see things that are incredibly faint and uh, incredibly small on the on the sky. Uh, we can come on to the, the latest results uh, that, that you've been part of. And it's all about a, a system. It's a star and some things orbiting it that goes by the, the, the catchy name of PDS-70. Uh, it's just its catalogue name, uh, essentially. Um, it's a star that's about something like 350 light years away yeah. or thereabouts, and it's just a little bit smaller than our our sun. But what you've been looking at is the stuff around the star. So can you give describe to us this this system of uh, planets and gas and dust and so on? Absolutely. So this PDS-70 system um, is, uh, I think, very peculiar in the sense that so far it's the only system known to date where we have directly detected forming planets within a circumstellar or protoplanetary disk. So the system has a star at the center. There is some dust and gas close to the star at the distance of roughly the Earth to the sun. Then there is a big cavity, meaning that there is a deficit of gas and dust for about 30 astronomical units or so. And in the outer regions, there is a big ring of gas and dust, again, in particular dust, which is very close to where the Kuiper belt is in our own solar system. So in these cavities, uh, people have looked at um, evidence for planets themselves. And what happened is that a few years ago, in 2018, um, a collaborator of mine detected the first planet in formation within this big cavity at about 20 astronomical units. This planet is called PDS-70b. And after that, the discovery was so big that everyone went looking at the system with every different, you know, all available telescopes in the world, basically. And uh, one year later, they discovered a second planet, PDS-70c, which is very close to this outer ring of gas and dust. These two planets are massive. We know that they are more massive than Jupiter itself. So we, we call them 
we could call them super uh, Jupiter, if you want. Um, so they have a mass of probably a few Jupiter masses and they're orbiting their central star as the planets in our own solar system orbit the sun. So the physics is exactly the same. We, we see gas and dust that is being accreted by these two planets. So these two planets are still growing and we see material that falls onto the surface of these planets and emits light even in the ultraviolet. So very energetic um, emission. Around one of the two planets, what we have recently discovered, it's that there is some emission of very cold dust, <clears throat> which is surrounding one of the two planets, PDS-70C. And what we think we're seeing, actually we're very confident we're seeing, is that we're seeing a circumplanetary disk, which is the material that is going to lead to the formation of moons around this system. For, for years now, a few years ago, quite a few years ago now, we've seen these protoplanetary disks, so this, this uh, gas and dust around stars forming rings and so on. We've seen evidence for there being planets in these rings. But this this is astonishing because it's the first time there's evidence of, of what's going on at the next scale down. So it's the equivalent of we've seen the formation of the planets in the solar system. Uh, we, we've seen that kind of thing before, where they're forming in relation to their gas and dust. Uh, so that might be in our solar system the equivalence of where Jupiter and Saturn and Uranus and Neptune are, are forming in their uh, in their orbits. But this is effectively saying what's going on around one of those those giant objects. So this is something that I guess I mean one can only speculate because we'd have to wait a few million years uh, or thereabouts, and and we don't have time. Uh, but this this could lead to systems like I guess. Uh, Jupiter and Saturn. I mean, can, can one make comparisons between what we see in our own solar system and this? Have we got enough, enough information to compare them yet? Absolutely. So we can make some comparison. I think PDS-70 is particularly interesting because it shares some similarities with our own solar system. So the scales are roughly uh, different. So we see these two massive planets, uh, which are a bit farther out than the Jupiter-Saturn couple. Uh, in our own solar system. But we think what's happening is very similar. Uh, so what's happening is that these two massive planets, the first thing is that they are separating the disk in two very distinct regions. We have the ring outside the two planets, and there is a small disk around the star within the orbits of the two planets, which we can see that it's starved. What, what does it, this mean? It means that the material from the outer ring struggles to reach the inner regions because there is a barrier of these two planets. And this is exactly what happened with our own solar system. We know that Jupiter in particular, but also the Jupiter-Saturn couple was very effective in creating a barrier um, thus limiting the amount of material that could come to the terrestrial planet forming region. And that's why the Earth, Mercury, Venus, Mars are particularly low in mass. Uh, the mass of our own terrestrial planets is um, atypical for what we can see in the sense that many planetary systems form chains of what we call super Earths. So uh, planets that are more massive than the Earth itself and Venus. And um, why didn't it happen in our, in our own solar system? We, we think because there was a Jupiter-Saturn pair, okay? 
And we think exactly the same is happening in PDS 70 And this is extremely exciting because somehow we can study this mechanism that uh, sculpted, sculpted our own solar system enact in another system while it's forming. My understanding is, and correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, that the gas and the dust likes to spiral inwards, as you say. It likes to spiral in towards the center just because friction makes it lose energy and angular momentum and, uh, and, and so on. And so that then spirals inwards and should form some planets, but, but it can't get towards the center because of these massive things that are swallowing it all up and, and, and accreting it all. Um, that inner bit around the star, you mentioned there was this inner disk of around one astronomical unit in radius. So that's about where our terrestrial planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth and Mars are in our solar system. Um, do we think, I mean, do we think there are still planets forming or there could still be planets forming there? So planets like the terrestrial planets in our solar system, do, do we know anything about that inner disk? So that's a great question. <clears throat> so we think that, so this inner disk is actually slightly, yeah, it's a bit bigger than one AU. Um, so it's a few AU in size, but what we see is that it's not very bright. So when we compare it to other disks, we see that it's very dim in the sense that it shows that there is not much dust in there. And that's why we can say that it's starved. <clears throat> At the moment, we do not have the angular resolution to understand, to see whether there are planets forming there. Um, but what we hope to do in the far future is that we also with new facilities that will come in the next, you know, five to 10 years, like the extremely large telescope at ESO, we'll be able to access these very inner regions to see whether there is indirect or even direct evidence of planets uh, within these very inner regions. That would be very exciting to see whether there's, there's something much more akin to our, our solar system in terms of that, that, that inner region. And then moving outwards, you mentioned these planets have got this barrier, um, so they've got this outer disk that's, that's out beyond them. And so, again, my understanding of, uh, of planet formation models is that these two giant planets have caused this, this cavity, this gap in the, in the disk, and that they will, by interacting with what's left in the outer ring, do, are they likely to spiral outwards a little bit? Are they going to move around because of all the gravitational interactions? Is that something we can we can test with this? Or is, is it hard because we just get a snapshot? This is also a very good question. So what we think is that typically planets tend to migrate inwards. This is actually a very difficult problem mathematically. So people are still spending a lot of time trying to understand exactly if planets move inwards or outwards because it, the, the balance of the forces is very uh, difficult to compute. These are all what we say second order effects. So there are very fine details in the, in the physics. But usually what we think is that planets should, as you say, spiral inwards on very long time scales. So it would take a long time, but still this, typically planets move uh, towards the inner regions. But there is an exception, which is again what happened in our own solar system, is that when there are there is a pair of massive planets, and the outer one is slightly less massive than the inner one, which is Jupiter and Saturn, what happens is that these two planets they get locked in what we call resonance. And what happens is that then they migrate outwards. And what we see, what we think we're seeing in PDS 70 due to some indirect evidence and modeling of the whole system with hydrodynamical simulations, is that these two planets are uh, likely migrating outwards. Uh, so this is not, this is uh, inference uh, from the data we see and comparison with uh, simulations. 
So there's still work to be done and to see whether we're right or not, but they, we're pretty confident this, this is what's happening. Let, let's go in back, back into that exo-moon forming disk, this, this disk of material around it. So we see that the giant planets in our solar system, particularly Jupiter and, and Saturn, less so the, the, the outer two, uh, Uranus and Neptune, but around Jupiter and Saturn, they have um, enormous families of, of moons. Uh, now, we think some of those are captured asteroids and captured Kuiper Belt objects and centaurs that have been formed in other places in the solar system and just got captured by their gravity. But it is thought that most of those, or many, certainly the big ones, formed you know, in situ, where they are around that planet. Um, you mentioned these planets themselves are a few times bigger than Jupiter uh, and Saturn each. What can we say about that That potentially moon-forming disk? And is that going to give us something like the moon system's I say us, it doesn't give us anything. Is it going to give the inhabitants, potential inhabitants of PDS-70, uh, something like the moon systems of, of Jupiter and, and Saturn? I think the big discovery, uh, which also caught a lot of press attention, is that we saw this uh, dust, uh, which was co-located with where we know the planet, the PDS-70C is. And uh, it's difficult to say from the image, but you know this measurement was very, very challenging. See, we managed to pick up this, this very faint signal. And still it's faint, but it shows that there is quite a lot of mass within this disk. So we see this, what we say, a point source. So it's material that is clearly, clearly gravitationally bound to the planet. Otherwise, it wouldn't be there. It doesn't make sense for a blob of dust to be in, within the cavity if it wasn't for the planet. And um, the 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 kind of amount of dust we see is at least uh, three masses of our own moon, which is fairly massive, okay? Uh, these are, why do I say at least? Because we think that there is more mass that is um, like hidden by the, uh, by the dust itself. So the dust is kind of opaque, so we can see the surface. We can roughly say how much the Big the, how big the disk is, but we just have a, an upper limit. So like uh, we can say how what's the minimum mass that explains what we see, but there can be more hidden in there. So um, to me, if we compare this to, to theoretical models of the formation of moons, uh, PDS-70C is the perfect case in which moons should or could, let's say, be forming. It says that it's what we call late stage of circumplanetary disk evolution. So the, the planet is not creating much mass anymore. Uh, so it's quite relaxed. <clears throat> so the disk can cool down, the circumplanetary disk can cool down and can really form moons. Um, so to me, I mean, we have no idea how many, how many moons it would form if even it would form, but we are confident it should be if our theorists are right. Um, but we are, in principle, to me, that's the best example we have in our sky so far that we have discovered so far to understand how moons could be forming and the kind of conditions in which moons could be forming. And to me, you know, uh, maybe we form system like either Jupiter or Saturn with, you know, uh, dozens of moons orbiting the planets. I think that's totally possible. Uh, I don't know whether we will ever be able to say 
exactly why we'll form. Maybe in a few million years, someone will observe the system again and see what happened. And it, we're talking about that time, kind of time scale to form these moons, right? I mean, it's, it's the similar order to planet formation. We're talking millions of years, I assume, or certainly hundreds of thousands of years to, right. to do this. So, so we, we can't watch it in in real time, I guess, um, or, or well, we can, but it'd be very boring to uh, boring to watch. Um, what are you hoping for next? So we've got this one example of uh, a, a, a circumplanetary disk, so this disk of stuff around uh, a, a planet that's potentially forming moons. Um, I mean, what, what, is the, what is the next step? Study this in more detail, or have we kind of got to the limit of that, or do you try and find more examples of, of this kind of stuff? What, what, are, you, what are you hoping for? So there are um, different uh, paths our, uh, ahead of us in what we can do and what we are going to do for sure. So the first one is to uh, characterize even better this one system. Again, it's a unique one so far. And so we'll try to understand everything we can about it. In particular, we have um, new ALMA data um, to look at two different things. One is to understand exactly how the planets are interacting with the gas around them. So to look at the kinematics of the gas uh, around the planets. And um, because this will tell us a lot about how the planets and the disk co-evolve. And this is the only system where we know where the planets are and therefore we can really understand what, what this kind of symbiotic evolution uh, looks like. The second thing uh, we are doing, this something I'm particularly I am leading myself, is to look at the chemical composition of the gas around these two planets, because this is going to tell us what's the what are the chemical properties of the material that is forming the atmospheres of these two planets, and this uh, will again will help us understand how the atmosphere of planets and you know the the um, potential for life even you know on a very long term in planets uh, due to the chemistry is related to the chemistry of their birth environment so these are two things we are doing on this particular system uh, together with other ones <clears throat> so we have a lot of telescope timers with different telescopes to, to look at these things from different angles but the other thing is we want to find more of these things. And the way which we'll do it uh, as a community and as a group in which I work is one is to use new instruments such as the James Webb Space Telescope for to look for embedded planets, so um, infant planets within their disks. And James Webb will be fantastic for that. And the second thing is to look for, to find also these planets by looking at how they modify the kinematics of gas in these disks. So to have an indirect evidence of embedded planets by looking at these kinematics. So we just got a tremendous amount of ALMA time, it's 200 hours roughly, that will be taken in the next year, a large program just to do exactly this. And we are very excited to see whether we'll, we'll find uh, way more planets uh, around newborn stars. So I guess that makes you a neonatal planetary scientist or, <laughs> or something um, that maybe we need a new term for, uh, for the research field. Um, 
it's fascinating to hear about the the discoveries and i really look forward to hearing what's happening uh with the, the studying this system and learning how planets and potentially even moons uh form as as more observations come in as you say from from existing and future uh, telescopes uh so dr stefano facchini uh from the university of milan uh, thank you very much thank you thank you it was great that's it for this month. Uh, don't forget, you can find past episodes at pythagastro.uk, where you can also subscribe to the podcast. And of course, you can find us on Spotify. Until next month, goodbye. You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy, an extended version of this month's Astronomy Roundup from Pythagoras' Trousers, a weekly science and technology radio show presented by me, Rhys Phillips. You can catch up on full episodes of Pythagoras' Trousers, subscribe to our podcast and get in touch by going to www.pythagoras-trousers.radio.fm. <laughs>